Lord Jesus, we really love you, Lord. And we consider this to be such a privilege that we could gather together like this. Oh, we like to open our whole being to you. Oh, for all that is within you. Oh, we like to be open vessels this morning. Lord, have your way with us. Even have your way throughout all of Europe. Gain something for yourself. Amen. Well, this morning, uh, we begin our parents' conference. Uh, The first thing that I would like to do is fellowship a little bit about what we've been doing over the last number of years. Uh, To my recollection, uh, coming to Poland now, this is my 15th conference in Poland. My first one was 2003. So, uh, but early on, the brothers from Poland had asked me if I could spend two afternoons to release something to them concerning the work with the children or the responsibility of the parents. And so we did that. And we did two a week, uh, yeah, two during the week, Tuesday afternoon and Thursday afternoon. But uh, as time went on, uh, it became more and more difficult for me to do that and the evening meetings with the young people. And so uh, as this conference grew and developed, we decided to add a parents section to the conference. And that also meant a children's section. And so we've been adding this for the last number of years. Uh, In 2014, we had four sessions, uh, and we were in House 46 in the basement there, and I believe those messages were recorded and videotaped um, and available, and that's really when this series began. We went back to begin the series again to present kind of an overall vision and burden for raising up our next generation for the Lord's interest and his move. Then in 2015, we began to have, I believe, this tent. This is the third time that we've had this uh, facility. What a wonderful thing. I'm so happy this morning we have air conditioners. Last year we had fans, but uh, things seem to be getting better every year. (laughs) Praise the Lord. So, uh, every time we're together, we like to spend at least one message on the burden related to the responsibility of the parents. You know, I think as a parent, sending your children to the Poland Conference is a wonderful thing. And you pray for us, and you really hope that we'll do some miraculous work on your child You give us seven days and you want us to turn the age with them. But, you know, without the cooperation of the parents and the family life and the church life, there's not really a lot that we can accomplish in one week. And so we felt there's really a need for us to begin to speak something to infuse the parents. And while we don't have all the parents of the saints and the churches in Europe here. But we do have a representation, and I'm so happy we have these messages translated into so many languages. And so all of these 
will be videotaped and put up on a website so that they could be spread to everyone who has a heart for this, who has a burden for this, okay? And so we had six in 2015 and six last year. And the burden from the beginning, uh, from 2014, 15, 16, was related to the children's work. It's the burden related to the children's work and certainly the burden related to the parents' responsibility with children. When we talk about children, we're talking about children basically under the age of around 12. Beginning this year, we're making a shift. Now we're moving into the young people's work section. You know, um, we're pretty much following the line and burden that was published in this book. This book is called Raising Up the Next Generation for the Church Life. And this starts off with the responsibility of the parents. It has a section in there on serving ones and then the children's work. And then it goes into the young people's work. We're so happy and blessed that in the Lord's recovery in 2011 May, this book could become available to the saints and churches. It's now available in so many languages. uh, And uh, it's a great, great help. And so... Uh, I would encourage you to get this book and uh, get into it. This time we're covering chapters uh, 17, 18, and uh, (laughs) uh, since this book came out in 2011, we have continued to study and research. And so we have, well, I'm not going to call them, Chapters, but they are chapters that are not in the book. They're outlines and messages. And uh, we're going to have one of those this time. And we did that with the children as well. So let me just recap a little bit what we covered in the last few years with the children's work before we move on. Is that okay? And do you all have your... Uh, uh, I need the chalkboard, so, or, or so I, I'm going to erase this. I hope you all have your language radios... Maybe we could publish this on a sheet. Is it okay if I erase this? <laughs> Amen. Okay. 98.1 English, 107 Romanian, 104 French, 101 Spanish, 95 Russian, 92 Polish. I'll leave those two there. Okay. What we, uh, what we saw with the children's work is that from zero to about 12 years old, is uh, children, babies, infants, toddlers, all the way up. But when Brother Lee was speaking about the children's work, he was mostly speaking about that section of time from about five years old through elementary school age. Brother Lee was never strict or legal about ages. It has a lot to do with the child, with their maturity, with their uh, consideration, But there are three principles that I would like to repeat to you. These are principles. They're not laws. They're not regulations. But they're principles related to this stage of a child's life. The first principle is that this is B.C., before Christ. Okay, this is the age of law. This is not the age of grace. This is the time 
before they know the Lord in a deeper way, before they have been regenerated or, or saved, they are like, well, I know it's hard for the parents to uh, think this way about their children, but they are, they're fallen sinners, okay? That's what they are at this stage. We are shaping humanity. They're very flexible. They're moldable. They're soft. And so this is a very strategic age in our raising up the next generation because you can affect them a lot during this stage. So the first realization as parents that we have to have is that they're not believers. Well, when they really become believers, I don't really know. And I don't think anybody knows. You know, God knows what we don't know. And sometimes as parents, we try to make them spiritual, very young, and this will damage them. Uh, so we don't want to make them too inward, too subjective, too deep, too quick. Rather, during this stage, we have to treat them just like the Lord treated the children of Israel. So the second principle is that it is they are under law. You know how the law was a child conductor to do what? To lead people to Christ. And so we would like to have this kind of relationship with the children where we place certain demands upon them concerning their conduct and behavior and attitudes. Eventually, one day, they will realize they cannot make it. They cannot do it. You see, the function of the law is, first of all, to give us a portrait of God himself, what God is like. Uh, God is forgiving. Can you forgive your brother? God is kind. Can you be kind to your little sister? Eventually, at first, they'll be quite excited. Yeah, I can be kind. But after a while, the law, in the principle of the law, it always defeats everybody. No one can make it. You can't even make it. You can't be patient, and you can't be loving and kind and forgiving. So, sounds kind of maybe cruel, but it's not cruel. Because ultimately, Christ can do it. But they need to realize this. You can't just teach them this. Don't teach them that they can't do it. No, you have to say, you have to do it. Because when they realize they can't do it, that's right when they can meet the Savior. So the first principle is that this is a period of time before Christ. And because it's a period of time before Christ, we, we give them the second principle, which is this is a, uh, under the law. They're under the law. So we, give, we, we place demands on them, how they behave, how they speak, how they conduct themselves. You know, saints, I'm kind of alarmed as I, I travel around that there are many families that don't, uh, don't restrict their children at all. Uh, and this will damage them. They always need to be under some kind of restriction, okay, and some regulation. Eventually, they, this will help them. This will help them to know the Lord. Amen? Now, the third principle, let's see if I can remember it. Do you remember what the third principle is? Let's see. Uh, <laughs> it's been a year since I gave this message, so well, I'll think of it in a second. 
Anyway, during this period, we, uh, we teach them basically three things. Number one, we teach them that there is a God. You say, what do we teach children? What do we teach them? You have to teach them that there is an almighty one who is God. He's the ruler. He's on the throne. You know, I don't know if you've noticed this, but in society today, and even among children today, among our kids, there really is a very uh, uh, serious lack of the fear of God. In society today, people can do just about anything without any fear, without any... It's so alarming to me. Uh, Where does the fear of God come from? It comes from the existence of God. Today, all of the education system denies the existence of God. So, of course, there's no fear of God. There used to be a time when you'd be terrified to commit suicide, to take your own life, because you knew you instantly went to hell. Um, That's not my teaching, but that was the common thought. And, but today, it seems so easy, so common, because there's no God. We have to get in first. We have to get in quick. We have to be strong on this matter. The first thing that we have to impress our children with is there is God. There is an almighty one who is God, and he's the creator. So the second thing we have to impress them with is creation. So how do we show them that there is a God We show them God through creation. And so creation, when we talk about creation, I always like to make this point. Not to teach them creation in a doctrinal way by just teaching them on the day one, God did this. On day two, he did that. That's always, you look at all your children's meeting lesson books. It's all doctrine like that. Day one, day two, day three. Oh, praise the Lord. The dry land appeared. That's a type of Christ in resurrection. Forget about that. Don't tell them that. Tell them the wonder of creation. Show them the vastness of the universe, the beauty of the flowers, the mountains, the streams, the caterpillars, the worms, all the things. There's a million items. There's a million lessons. Every one of them shows the design, the wisdom, the majesty of God. So that's the second thing is creation. The third thing that we have to impress them with is humanity. You know, it's not... We gave entire, we gave entire messages on this. So you have to go back to those videos to see that. But the third one, and this is, this is very, very crucial. Most of the children's work for parents and serving ones is to impress the children with the preciousness of the human vessel, the preciousness of humanity, mainly to show them the human virtues that express the divine attributes. Now, don't get uh, confused. God is rich and boundless in what he is. God is love. How can you describe it? It's indescribable. But when God became a man, all those rich and boundless attributes were expressed in a human, through a human being, through his human virtues. And the love of God became manifest in his kindness, 
his sympathy, his compassion and forgiveness. So that's how people know God's love is through how it is expressed in humanity. So the most awesome thing is, is that when God created man, he created a man, a vessel that could express the boundless God. What does it look like when divinity is mingled with humanity? It looks like Jesus. And what do you have with Jesus? Oh, it's indescribable. He's small. He's even disfigured. He's uh, limited. He couldn't even carry his own cross. He wasn't bulky and strong and tall like me. I'm not strong anymore, but I used to be. He was small and he was disfigured. Yet, there was something so charming about him. It was the rich and boundless God mingled with humanity, expressed through human virtues. So what we'd like to do is we would like to spend years preparing these vessels with virtues. The virtue of kindness and patience, forgiveness. Uh, We'll touch some in the message this morning, even um, compassion and sympathy. These are the things that were so striking. I think the disciples must have been uh, really in awe as they observed the Lord Jesus living. You know, living with him day and night for three years must have left quite an impression. You know, you can't write down everything in the Bible. Even John said, if all the things were written down, not even the whole world can contain the, the stories, you know, the... The examples. It was divinity mingled with humanity. So you see, saints, oh, this is the third principle. I just got it. (laughs) Praise the Lord. It is a time of preparation. This is the third principle. That this period is is a time of preparation. And that means we're not filling the vessel yet. We're preparing the vessel. We're shaping it and molding it by developing in the children so many virtues, so many human virtues. Now, you have to go back or you have to read the the chapters uh, again and again and again and then pray a lot and fellowship a lot and may the Lord impress us. So that is the children's work right there in in a nutshell. Three principles, it's before Christ. Number two, it's under the principle of law. And the third principle is that it's a time of preparation. If we, re- if we realize this, it's, we're preparing them, preparing them. Uh, you know, I uh, always love that verse in Luke 1 where <clears throat> the ministry of John the Baptist is revealed and it says that he will come and he will turn the hearts of the, the fathers to the children In Malachi, it says, in the hearts of the children to the fathers. But in Luke, it only mentions the hearts of the fathers to the children. To prepare for the Lord a people made ready. That's what we're doing, is we're preparing something for the Lord. Okay? So then we come to the next stage. So now we have to forget about this, because we're moving on.
We, we like to use, um, for the children's work, we like to use this verse, uh, 2 Timothy uh, 2.21, not 2.22, 2.21. If anyone cleanses himself from these, he will be a vessel unto honor, sanctified, useful to the master, prepared unto every good work. There's a good verse for a theme for the children's work. We're preparing these vessels. We're training them and equipping them. We're not filling them with Bible knowledge, with a lot of stories, with uh, stories that don't mean, don't have any uh, significance. We are using a lot of stories, and we are using the Bible. Don't be mistaken. But we're using them with this goal, to prepare these vessels. Okay? Then... uh, Then the verse we like to use for the young people's work is 2 Timothy 3.17. That the man of God may be complete, fully equipped unto every good work. In 2.21, to the children is prepared unto every good work. In 3.17, well, in 2.21, they're vessels prepared. In 3.17, they're a Godman. Now, they're our brothers and sisters. They are God-men. And they're equipped, completed, perfected unto every good work. Okay. So let's change the years here. Now, we are talking about young people. So let's make 12 to 25. Brother Lee like to divide the human life into three sections. 25 years, 25 years, 25 years. From zero to 25 is the stage of education. This is when we're learning, we're gaining, we're being constituted. It's during our school years, our graduate school years, our full-time training years. Zero to 25 is the time for us to be learners, learners. The second stage of our human life from 25 to 50 is the stage of perfecting. This is when what we've learned is wrought into our being. It becomes us. It becomes our very constitution. And this stage is very, very crucial. Uh, This is when you get married, you begin to have children, you have a job or a career, and all the human pressures begin to press down on you and all the complications of human life. You know, when you're young, a teenager, you think life is so hard, so hard. Well, just wait until you have teenagers of your own and then it gets a little harder. Well, you see, this is God's wisdom. During this stage of perfecting, what we, what we gained early on can be worked into us, constituted into our being as a real kind of learning before God. It's really important for us to learn before God so many things. And then from 50 to 75, if the Lord would grant us these many years, then we enter a stage of usefulness. Well, I certainly hope all of you will be useful long before you turn 50, but at least from 50 is when you have the education, the constitution, 
and the usefulness before the Lord. So we want to give our young people a very good beginning, okay? Zero to 20, or from 12 to 25. Now they are believers, okay? They are believers. And this is the stage of equipping, completing. All this is the same word in Greek. And perfecting. Okay, this is what's happening. This is what's happening down the street. We're having a conference on the kingdom. The kingdom of God. We're equipping them with the truth in an experiential way concerning what the kingdom of God is. We're uh, furnishing their function. We're perfecting them and completing them. All of our church life should be like this. And I hope... I hope all of you, not just parents, just hear about my family, my children, my kids, my happy life, my success. Brothers and sisters, the Lord needs a whole group of young people in Europe. I hope you'll enter into this vision and burden, and every one of you would open up your hearts to bear these young ones before God. But this is the stage where we are We're dealing with believers, and what we're doing is equipping them, completing them, and perfecting them. And then, how do we do this? Let me give you four more. (laughs) The gospel. We have to help them to be seeds of the gospel. Right? To be not secret closet Christians, but to be open, confessing Christians. We need to help them in the way of life. We need to help them in the truth. Our meetings should be full of life and truth. And then finally, we have to help them in the church life. We're going to have a message this uh, this week on bringing the young people into the church life. Uh, This is really crucial. So, as we are developing this line in the next few years on the young people's work, we're going to develop out all of these kind of points. These are kind of like the the structure uh, for this labor. Okay? Now, this morning, I have a little bit of work to do with the outline, and so I better get going. Uh, This morning's message is coming back to the responsibility of the parents So if you turn to your outline on page 9, I think it's page 9, we'll go through this outline together. Uh, I just can't, I can't tell you how happy I am to be able to speak these things in Europe. Uh, It's a real, a real privilege uh, to be able to open up these matters and for it to be translated into many languages for the saints in Europe. I believe this will, the Lord could use this very much to change even uh, our thought, our vision, our concept concerning our own children. So how about we read the title of this outline all together um, in whatever language you have. Um, thank the Lord we have many languages. But let's read this uh, title all together, Okay. 
cooperating with God for his move as parents entrusted with their children to cultivate and nurture them in the Lord. Saints, as we are putting together these outlines for this book project, uh, the Lord, you know, the Lord was so with us. We were led by the Lord and burdened by him both from what we were reading in the ministry, what we were what we were getting from the seven feasts, there were things coming together that was very special. Maybe a very special time in my life uh, working on this particular project. And uh, we had just had a conference, I believe it was in Phoenix, Arizona, on cooperating with God uh, for his move on the earth for Europe. It was 2005 or six. And by, I was so deeply touched in that conference by the Lord speaking. And as I applied this, or as I began to consider this, I became very burdened that the parents would realize who they were and who they were raising and the significance of the parents' role in raising up a generation that would end the age and bring the Lord back. I don't want to overstate that. I don't want that to become old or uh, some kind of a slogan with us. You know, John the Baptist came as someone used by the Lord to turn the age. But if you read through the Gospels, you'll find out that John the Baptist had parents. John the Baptist didn't just fall out of the sky one morning and then appear with camel skin in the, in the wilderness. He had parents who understood who he was. An angel had appeared to them, uh, at least to the father, to Zechariah, and told him that your child, your son, your wife's barren, she's older, she hasn't had a child yet, but she's going to have a son. His name is going to be John, and he's going to turn the age. He quoted from Malachi, from Isaiah, he quoted these verses. It became very clear to Zechariah. It must have hit him like a ton of bricks. Me? My son? Will be the forerunner of the Messiah? The Christ? The realization must have been powerful. And it must have caused them to become very careful and very serious about how they raised him. At the end of Luke, it tells us that the little child was in the wilderness. And we wonder, why was the little child in the wilderness? I mean, John was a priest, born of priests. He should have been in the temple. He should have been raised in the temple complex. And now he's in the wilderness. Who brought him there? Parents with a vision. Parents with an understanding. The angel told the parents, he's the voice of one crying in the wilderness. We better bring him to the wilderness. They didn't know, but he had an appointment with God who told him to baptize people. He who sent me to baptize, it says, it is he who said to me, this is in John chapter 3, I think, or John chapter 1. You realize these parents were full of realization who their child was. This morning we're going to talk about another set of parents, Samuel's parents, Hannah and Elkanah. 
They knew who he was. They also were barren without children. Yet, they cried out to God and God heard their prayer, answered their vow and gave them a child. And then she fulfilled her vow by raising him in a certain way, realizing who he was, who he was going to be, what it meant to God to have him. So in this title, we have this phrase, cooperating with God. Cooperating with God. And I don't know if you've ever had this kind of a thought, but I, I did. I was with the Lord. I was frustrated with my Christian life, struggling, walking, conversing with the Lord. I don't know if you ever do this. You just talk to him. It's like, Lord, what do you want me to do? I'm, I'm weak. I'm not that strong. I'm a mess. I, I have too many failures. Uh, what do you want from me? How, how can I render the best cooperation to you? And I got, I got an answer. The answer is this. Just open. Open to me. Don't be, don't try, don't do, don't exercise your effort. Open to me. Just open. So this is the first point on cooperating with God, is that we have to learn how to open. We have to open everything. Our marriage, our, fa- our finances, our family life, our problems, our conflicts at work, the difficulties we have with our children, Frustrations within our failures, our defeats. If we would just learn to open, this would help us so much. And of course, opening implies we have to empty ourselves out. We have to let go. Let go. Let go of the past, the hurts, the wounds. Open up those wounds. We all got wounded in the church life. We all got hurt. Didn't you get hurt? Yeah, we got hurt. Maybe it was me. I'm sorry. (laughs) That hurt you. I hurt a lot of people. We have to let go of our hurts, our past, and and open ourselves. Second thing that can render the Lord the best cooperation. And what does he need from us? He doesn't need us to be strong. He doesn't need us to be powerful. But he does need our permission. He needs a consecration from us. If we could learn how to give him a fresh consecration every day, giving him the freedom, the full freedom in our life, with our family, with our children, with our, our situation, giving him the ground, the permission, oh, he could do a lot. Open to him, consecrate to him. I thought, oh, wow, you know, I could do that. We can do that, Right? Oh, but I found out when I began to open, I I thought, okay, what am I going to open? I'm going to open up this and that. and I'll open up this problem and that. And then I got to this one thing and I, yeah, I'm going to open that too. And I said, Lord, and then, uh uh-uh, don't open it. Don't open it. That's how I knew this is really crucial because there's some things in me I wasn't that easy to open up. My, my relationship with my wife, maybe, or my husband, or my, my, that child. 
you know, that grown child. That, but we learn how to open up everything and consecrate. Give him, you know, consecration gives him the freedom, the permission to do whatever is on his heart for us. How good to be consecrated people and always keeping our consecration fresh. And then the third thing. Oh, the third thing, and this is the most crucial thing in our cooperating with him, is that we would realize that every environment, everything that happens, no matter how it happens, the source of the happening, why it happens, all of it is under God's arrangement. If we realize... You know, God's dispensing and God's economy does not take place in a vacuum. It always needs an arrangement. It needs an environment. It needs that situation. It needs that husband. It needs that wife. Don't get out of your marriage. Don't break it up. God's arrangement has ordained that for you. When you realize that, then everything becomes a blessing to us. Everything's a profit. We always gain. We never lose. We're so blessed. We're the most blessed people in the whole earth because everything blesses us. You know, Joseph, in the Old Testament, the story of Joseph, he was hated by his brothers, thrown into a pit, sold into slavery, falsely accused, and then put in prison, forgotten by God, forgotten by man, And you know what Joseph would say? He'd say, I'm the most blessed person. I was blessed by that pit. I was blessed by those brothers because all of it was for the kingdom. All of it was so that I could reign one day and become a source of supply and blessing to the whole earth. He didn't blame his brothers. He didn't blame God. Everything blessed him. I hope we all could become these kind of people. We're just happy people. How? Because we opened to him. Because we consecrated to him. And because we realized everything is under God's arrangement. What a blessing. So that's cooperating with God for his move. As parents entrusted. Oh, there's so much to say. And we'll get into this more. But I'd like to uh, finish this with their children to cultivate and nurture them in the Lord. All right, uh, let me begin to read through this. I have to go a little quicker. The fulfillment of God's economy requires our cooperation. And to cooperate with God means to be bound together with Christ and to have one living with him by one life. God's, the fulfillment of God's economy, his purpose and plan requires human cooperation. To cooperate with him means to be bound together with him. Brother Lee used the example of a three-legged race. I don't know if you have participated in a three-legged race where they tie your leg together with a partner and then you have to run together. It's so fun to watch because everybody falls down because they don't know how to be bound to someone else to have one life, one living. This is our life with Christ. We're bound to him. 
We have one life with him, one living together with him. <clears throat> the example that in the, in the Bible that gives us the best, the best example in the Bible of cooperation is with Hannah and her bringing forth Samuel. Uh, Hannah was one who was in an environment. She was in a divinely arranged arrangement. She was barren. In fact, 1 Samuel tells us that God closed her womb. That really sounds kind of cruel, but God closed her womb. And he also prepared a provoker because she was barren. I'm guessing because she was barren, Elkanah took a second wife. He loved Hannah the most, but he took a second wife and she was having a lot of children. And then she was mocking Hannah and causing Hannah a lot of distress because Hannah could not bear a child. And so you can see Hannah is in a press. She is really under pressure. And I want you to pay attention to something. I would guess, based on my own experience, that Hannah's prayers changed over a period of time. I believe at the beginning she probably was praying mostly for herself. Lord, this is so terrible. I'm suffering so much. I feel so worthless. I'm under a curse. I can't have a baby. Please, give me a child. Come on. Give me a child, you know. And, of course, the silent, the heavens are silent, sealed up, no answer, no response. And the pressure intensifies. The pressure grows. And maybe maybe her prayers changed a little bit. I'm, I'm just guessing this. Maybe she began to pray for her husband. She said, you know, give me a son for my husband's sake. For him. Do it for him. Again, the heavens are sealed. No answer. And the pressure mounts. You see, what is it? What is, what is he doing? Well, she was a person on the line of life. Her family was on the line of life. They were one with the Lord in a very pitiful situation. The children of Israel had fallen into idolatry and sinfulness. The priesthood was damaged and waning and poor. And God needed a Nazarite. God needed a Nazarite. Where is he going to get a Nazarite from? Are you just going to volunteer and just say, okay, Lord, I'll give you a Nazarite. But under that pressure, a prayer squeaked out. If you give me a son, I'll give you a Nazarite. My. If she didn't have that environment, she wouldn't have had that prayer. Do you understand? When I said you have to, you have to realize the environments are so crucial. His dispensing operates something in us under pressure. We don't pray those prayers if we're so blessed. 
We think, oh, you know, I have all this money. I have all these wonderful children. I have these obedient, submissive uh, children. My wife is not only beautiful, but she's perfect. She waits on me hand and foot. She takes care of everything, and she never complains. Life is good. I'll give you a Nazarite. No, no, no. It's when, it's when everything is wrong and you feel like God has left you. That's when that prayer comes out. That, and you know, when, when Hannah was there praying with her lips, pouring out her soul to Jehovah, Eli, the priest, was watching and he thought she was drunk. You know, his discernment was very, very bad. If you could listen carefully, you could hear the age turning on that prayer. It was a mother, brothers and sisters. It was a mom. It was a mom. A mom in distress that brought forth this Samuel. This is the example of one cooperating with God. She rendered him the greatest cooperation. Brother Lee said this when he was speaking about Hannah. He said, her case shows the kind of person God expects to have today. May we be this. And the striking thing about Hannah is that after her child was weaned, grew up to a certain age, she handed him over. She let go of him and she gave him to Eli. Um, so I, I'm thinking, you know, her prayer wasn't that spiritual. It wasn't that deep. It was very human. It was really human. You know, if you give me a child, I'll give him to you. I hope every one of us, when we have a child, right away we give him to the Lord. And we raise him with this realization that he's a Nazarite for the Lord's move. All right, let me keep going. Point A, God's heart is to carry out his economy. God's economy is not merely that we should be good, spiritual, holy, or victorious. He desires neither a good man nor a bad man, but a God man. You might think that what makes God happy is if we're spiritual, if we're victorious, that we're really good. Actually, he wants open vessels. He wants some like Hannah. This is what will give him the ground and the opportunity to do something. Point B says, instead of usurping God by praying for our prosperity, health, or family, Without any consideration of God's economy, we should pray, live, and be persons according to God's heart and for his economy. There's a background to this statement. This statement goes into Samuel chapter 4, where the children of Israel are going to war with the Philistines. And the children of Israel are in a very bad situation They have turned to idols. They are sinful before God. They go out to face the enemy, the Philistines, and are defeated. And they're surprised. They always expected that God would help them win. And so they got defeated 
it might be that you got a good job and you think, oh, God is blessing me. And then all of a sudden you get fired from your job and you wonder, what, what happened? I thought, I thought God was with me. Well, they, they didn't know what was wrong. They should have repented, turned back to the Lord and sought him uh, concerning his, their situation. But instead, what they did is they came back and they said, how about this? How about if we bring the ark out into the battle with us, we'll surely get the victory. You know, they were superstitious, thinking that if they had the ark of God with them in the, in the battle, they would win. Previously, that had happened. They thought, well, maybe it'll happen again. So they brought the ark out with them, and when they all the uh, guys saw the ark coming, they all rejoiced, and they all got excited, and then they got defeated again. And this time, the ark got captured by the Philistines and was taken into their idol temple. As Brother Lee was applying this, you see, the ark always takes the lead among God's people. God's people, you don't bring the ark into the battle. The ark brings you into battle. All right? It always took the lead. And when the ark was about to move, Moses always offered a prayer. Let God arise and let his enemies be scattered. It was a, a proclamation of victory. Whenever God moves, it's glorious and it's victorious. But anyway, they just took it. It's like they forced God into a battle that God was not willing to fight. He didn't want to fight that battle. He didn't want to be there. You forced him to fight. So Brother Lee said, this is like usurping God for our benefit. So when we pray for our prosperity, our health, our family, without any consideration of God's economy... This is like usurping God. We should pray, live, and be persons according to God's heart and for his economy. You know, the ark is the presence of God among his people. This means, brothers and sisters, we we really need to spend time to be with the Lord, to understand things. You know, I wanted to read a little section out of this chapter You know, this uh, particular message is from chapter 8 in this book. And on page 137, as Brother Lee is talking about this very point, I want to read a paragraph, if you can listen carefully. Today, many Christians usurp God by praying for their prosperity, you know, better job, more comfort, health, or family without any consideration of God's economy. When we ask God for his healing, we must, we, must, we must be fully related to his economy. If you are ill, you should not pray for healing in the way of usurping God. Think about that. On the contrary, from the depths of your spirit, you should say, Lord, I'm not here on earth for my health, my prosperity, my children, or my work. I'm here for your economy. Do you still want me to live on the earth for your economy? I've seen your economy. I realize that you need Nazarites. And I have a heart to be a Nazarite for you. As one who has been born of God and who has the life and nature of God, I ask you what is on your heart concerning me. 
Did you ever pray like that? If God intends that you continue living on earth for his economy, you will be healed either through a physician or through some other way. He can use anything. The point here is that instead of usurping God, we must pray, live, and be persons according to God's heart and for his economy. Brothers and sisters, I, I really hope we could learn how to give him the best cooperation. Not always. You know, most of our prayers are, are for ourselves and for our difficulties. May the Lord help us to learn not to usurp him. Point C, all things necessary for our human existence need to be under a divine limitation. Anything that exceeds our need becomes worldly, and it frustrates us from the economy of God's purpose. In everything, God's economy must be the deciding factor. When God's economy is carried out among his people, they are blessed. Our welfare, our well-being is linked to the carrying out of God's economy. And we should not seek our well-being apart from God's economy. We should expect, we should not expect prosperity for ourselves. Rather, we should expect that through us, the Lord will do as much as possible to accomplish his economy. Dear saints, one year ago, in June, the Lord led my wife and I in a very strong way to move to Germany for his move. We're not young. We're in our 60s. We sold everything. We packed up and we moved to Germany. We were so happy that we could be there. Just be there. Not to do a great work, not to try to be something. Just be there. Just be there. After six months, we found out that my daughter became very sick. She lives in Texas. Even very, very, very sick. So my wife had to go back to help her. And she's been staying there in Texas now for a number of months. Eventually, I needed to go to strengthen, support my wife and my family. It seems so confusing to me. Lord, what's going on? Why? Why would you send us in such a strong way and then apparently do something else? I don't know. I don't know the answer. But I can tell you this. I'm the most blessed person. I'm under a blessing. I'm in the middle of God's economy. My being is for God's economy. I'm not here for anything else. I'm not super spiritual. I'm not great. Don't think I'm so good. I'm not that good. Brothers and sisters, this is how God's economy gets worked out. Sometimes it's very confusing. It's very confusing. Anyway, I just wanted to tell you, When God's economy is carried out among his people, they are blessed. Okay, let's go on. Roman 2. The church cannot go on if parents do not have a sense of being entrusted. You know, this first Roman numeral is really a Roman numeral 
to help us get on the line of God's economy. We don't want to talk about how to be a good parent. We don't have do's and don'ts and, you know, count to ten if you get angry or say you're sorry and uh, please forgive me and thank you and be polite. I don't have any burden at all about that. My burden is God's economy, God's economy. Open yourself for his dispensing. Open yourself for his mingling in everything, in every way, no matter what's happening, how confusing it can be. Gain him. Consecrate to him and realize this is what he's doing today. So now we come to parents. Okay, parents, we need a sense of being entrusted. God has committed a human body along with his soul into our hands We do not want to see our children needing to be rescued back from the world. We are wrong if we do not take care of our children. Please remember that it is the parents' responsibility to ensure that their children turn out the right way. When the children are young, they are in your hands and can do nothing much themselves. If you are loose with yourself, you will be loose with them. We must realize that parents must exercise self-control sacrificing their own freedom. The verse here, John seventeen nineteen, lovely verse, where the Lord Jesus said, and for their sake I sanctify myself, that they also, they themselves also may be sanctified in the truth. After the church preaches the gospel and saves men, it has to deal with all kinds of family problems associated with these men. But if parents are responsible for the proper nurturing of their children, and if the children are brought up in the church, the church will be relieved of half of its burdens. Okay, so on this point about entrusting, parents having a sense of being entrusted, this this also needs to penetrate our concept. As a parent... I have four children of my own. I know what it is to be a parent. We often think of our children as our possessions. They're ours. They belong to us. But they're not. Psalm 127.3 says that children are the heritage of Jehovah. They're given to us by God. You thought you did that. You didn't do that. God gave you them. They're not yours. They are the heritage of Jehovah. Every time, every day, the day a child is born, we have to offer this child to God. Say, Lord, this child is yours. It's not my child. This is your child. I give him back to you. The Lord says, thank you. Thank you. And then the Lord says, but I need somebody to raise this child for me. I need someone that will raise him my way, according to me. So then he gives the child back to us. It's my child. I need you to raise him. Now I'm entrusting my child to you. It's quite a stewardship, huh? It's a little more serious than what we thought. This is Brother Nee's word. The church can't go on if the parents don't have a sense of being entrusted. 
you know, we raise our children according to the way we were raised. We raise our children according to our culture, or our background, or our... We do it in a, a very natural way. But how about we have a change? We have a change in our concept, and we have a change in our attitude. What is the... Lord, what is your way? I want to be God to this child. This is what it means to be entrusted. And then we get to Roman 3. We should nurture the children in the discipline and admonition of the Lord. We should tell them what a proper Christian is by teaching them the discipline of the Lord. You know, maybe this this sounds like children's work, and it is a little bit of children. This is still young children. The verse in Ephesians chapter 6, verse 4, it says, And fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, but nurture them in the discipline and admonition of the Lord. To provoke, it says fathers. I don't know why it says it doesn't say mothers, you know. I kind of do know why it says fathers. Do not provoke your children. The children, they need their dad so much. Their dads add such a too many kids grow up without a dad these days. It's just heartbreaking. What does a dad do? Dad's dad, you know. They don't need the dad's anger, frustration, abuse. They need the dad's tenderness and love. I was trying to understand this word nurture, you know, nurture. The Bible uses this term for the fathers, to nurture the children. Nurture implies nourishment. It implies, it implies love and tenderness. It raises them up, bring them up in a tender way. We'll touch this a little bit more. Actually, the dads have to be like mothers. Mothers are fine and tender. Parents must help their children. Okay, before we get to point A, I'd like to uh, say this. Paul said, you know, Don't provoke them, but nurture them in the discipline and admonition of the Lord. Okay, the discipline is like training. The admonition is like teaching, warnings. Okay, so what would you say is the right way to nurture the children in the discipline and admonition of the Lord? We would probably say, Read your Bible, pray, confess your sins, obey your mother, don't talk back. You know, Brother Nee says this, we should tell them what a proper Christian is by teaching them the discipline of the Lord. In other words, you're telling them how to behave as a Christian. You're telling them what is proper way a Christian behaves himself. But then when you get to the finer points, now this is the part that surprised me to the uttermost. 
Brother Nee gave us five points on how to nurture the children in the discipline and admonition of the Lord. Point number one. Sometimes I like to challenge my audience by saying, can you come up with five things that you would admonish your child with and guarantee, you know, to guarantee a good result? What would be your five points? Well, I know that your five points are not going to be Brother Nee's five points. So let's just read Brother Nee's five points, okay? <laughs> Number one, parents must help their children to have proper aspirations. How we live, how we live affects the aspirations of our child. Parents must learn to channel the ambitions of their children in the proper direction. The first thing, what do you want to be when you grow up? <laughs> what is your aspiration? Oh, I want to be a millionaire. I want to be a, a doctor. Oh, a lawyer. I want a president. El presidente, you know. Uh, I, I want to be uh, number one. I want to be a superstar, a rock star, a movie star. You know, we, how we live affects what they want to be. Brother, you know what Brother Nee said? He said, we should help our children to understand that it's an honorable thing. To suffer for the Lord. To be in want. You really want your children to be in want? To suffer for the Lord? And you have to tell them that it's the most precious thing. To be a martyr for the Lord. Whoa. This is helping our children to have proper aspirations. From my youth, I can testify to you. I didn't want to be a pastor. You know, I grew up in Christianity, and I, I wanted to serve the Lord. I thought, well, maybe I could be a missionary. Be a missionary. So here I am in Europe. <laughs> I finally got my dream, my aspiration. Brothers and sisters, we have to help our children not to be worldly, to make millions, to have a great name, Nobel Prize winner, Proper aspirations. Point B, the second point. Was that, was that one of your points about proper aspirations? No. Okay, point B. Let's see, number two. Many parents cultivate their children's pride and encourage them to go after vainglory by heaping praises upon them in front of other people. We do not need to hurt their self-esteem, but we must point out their pride to them. The second point is to help them to not be proud. We don't destroy them by telling them, cutting them down or damaging their self-esteem. But sometimes what parents do is they heap praises upon their child in front of everybody. My son, Rob, he was first in his class at Harvard. You know, summa whatever, cum, cum laude or whatever that is, valedictorian, salutatorian, he was all of that. And, you know, I make an announcement. I, I boast about my son in front of everybody. The child, yeah, I'm pretty good. Eventually, they, it takes them 10, 15 years to figure out they're not that good. They're not as good as they think they are. This damages them to heap praises upon them and even to encourage them to be proud Sometimes parents are too much, too much this way. First in your class, first in your class. 
you have to tell them, there's others that are going to be smarter than you. Some are going to run faster than you. Some are going to be stronger than you. That's okay. So the third point is, a Christian needs to know how to appreciate others. It's easy to be victorious, but it's hard to accept defeat. When our children are defeated, we need to teach them to accept their defeat with grace. Another virtue. Actually, in this section of the book, Brother Nee uses this word three times. It's a Christian virtue to accept defeat. It's a Christian virtue to be humble. He said when you're winners, it's often you can see with people who win, sometimes they ha- they're humble. But with people who lose, it's hard to see them with a proper attitude. They're bitter. They blame the teacher. You know, the teacher doesn't like me. That's why I failed the class. The sun was in my eyes. That's why I dropped the ball. Uh, the coach, the referee, you know. And so sometimes we, we, we just have to help them to accept defeat with grace. You know what Brother Nee said after this? He said, if our children learn these things, it will be easy for them to experience spiritual things later on. Think about it. If your child is too proud, it'll be hard to coordinate later. It'll be hard to blend with the saints. If your child is um, cannot accept it, who, ha- who in this room has not been defeated? We've all been defeated. Are we going to blame someone else, blame our, our husband, our wife, our kids? Eventually, we have to accept defeat with grace. This, this is all for our learning, for the body life. Let me go quicker. Point D. From their youth, we should give our children a chance to make their own choices. We should not make every choice for them until they reach the age of 18 or 20, or else it will be impossible for them to make any decisions when they grow up. Another point is help them to learn how to choose. You know, eventually all of our children have to choose for themselves which way they're going to go. And you develop their will, you develop their choosing ability from the time they're young instead of making every decision for them. We have young people that come to the training and their parents decided their major, their parents decided their career path. They were not given the freedom to choose. Eventually, they have to grow up and become a husband or a wife and, and they don't know how to how to make a decision. They have to call their parents to know what to do. This will damage them. Point E, as Christians, we have to train our children to manage their things properly. We must give them the opportunity to take care of their personal belongings, to manage their own shoes, socks, and other affairs. Let them know how things should be handled from their youth. Again, they're going to have to manage a life, a budget, time, uh, capacity. Their whole, you know, our whole life is a life of management. So he said, involve them. If you're going to rearrange the furniture in the room, involve them in that in that process. Let them arrange their sock drawer and give them the chance to manage. In this section, brother brother Nee said, if God would be gracious to us, half of the church's increase could come from our own children. And the other half could come from the world, from the sea. 
He said, if we don't get half of our increase from our own children, the church will never be strong and the gospel will never reach the uttermost parts of the earth. You always need a strong second generation. And this is what we're fighting for here in Europe, is that the Lord would give us a strong second generation. It's like a, a rocket ship. You know, you have the first booster, gets it into orbit, and then the second one sends it. We need that second generation. And so let's conclude with Roman 4. The way a child grows up depends on the atmosphere in the family. They must receive nurturing love as they grow up and must experience love in the family. Again, you have this word nurture, nurturing love. Half of the work of the church can be done by good parents. However, this work falls upon our shoulders today because there are few good parents. A family must be filled with an atmosphere of love and tenderness. There must be genuine love. Brother Nee said that many of the elements in the world today of crime and violence comes because of a lack of love in the family. Sometimes the dads are too aloof, distant. They're the kings reigning on the throne. You approach. I lift my scepter to receive you into my presence. But the family has to be full of nurturing love, tenderness. You know, even I'm standing here speaking these things. I'm full of conviction. You know, my my children are all grown up. I don't know. On this point, I don't know what to say. Children often grow up with a very low self-esteem. A lot of it can be traced back to the atmosphere in the family life. One complaint is that sometimes the children never feel they can be good enough. It's never good enough. They're not accepted. There has to be nurturing love, tenderness, encouragement. Listen to this next point, point C. Parents must learn to be friends to their children. This means you have a friendship relationship of you can open up to each other. You can talk freely. Never allow your children to distance themselves from you. Never make yourself unapproachable. Remember that friendship is built upon communication. It does not come by birth. Brother Nee said that if you are not close to your child in the first 20 years of his life or her life, you cannot expect to be close in the second 20 years of their life. Our kids need us. They need patterns. They need friends who are on their side, who are devoted to them and love them and will care for them for the Lord's sake. This is cooperating with God to produce them. Somebody asked Brother Lee a question and said, I'm an elder in the church. How, how do I take care of the church and my family at the same time? 
This is his answer. The most helpful thing to children is for their parents to spend time with them. The more time the parents spend with them, the better. Sometimes we need to have free talks with them about wide-ranging subjects. We should allow them to join in our activities, and we should join them in their activities. Both. They join us, we join them. But then he said, but you still have to take care of the church. And the only way to know how to measure this out is you have to contact the Lord. Fellowship with the Lord, and then you know. Amen. So I'm finished. How about we just take a minute to pray with our neighbor, okay, over this fellowship, and then we'll, we'll stop here. I don't know if there's time for... Yeah. Pray, pray with our neighbor, okay, for a few minutes, and then we'll have some sharing, okay?